and make our way here to Revelation chapter 14. We're in the midst of the vision of the dragon and his two beasts, the unholy trinity. We've seen in this vision that it represents and tells us why the church suffers temporarily. Why must believers go through difficult circumstances? It's because the dragon is raging, scheming, and deceiving in the world. The dragon has already lost the decisive battle because Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And so now we have to simply endure, in the meantime, his opposition to the work of the Messiah. We've been talking a lot recently about spiritual warfare because Revelation, especially 12 through 14, is really about spiritual warfare. In fact, we find ourselves in basically an awkward position, an awkward spot. Because on the one hand, we are facing this opposition from the dragon. Again, his scheming, his raging, his deceiving. We feel it. We feel it in the forms of temptation. And frankly speaking, many times we give in to temptation, don't we? We say yes when we should say no. We follow the crowd. The idols of our age are very attractive, and sometimes we treasure them more than we treasure Jesus. So we're feeling the heat from the dragon in so many ways. On the other hand, we have victory in Christ. We know we have victory in Christ. In 1 John 5, verse 4, John writes, This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Our faith in Jesus gives us access to this victory right now. So that's why I call it an awkward spot, because on the one hand, we're facing the hardship. On the other hand, we know we have victory in Christ. The question is, how will we respond in the meantime? Will we refuse to compromise? Will we say no to the unholy trinity and to the urging of the beasts? The focus here in Revelation chapter 14 shifts from the dragon and his beasts, and the counterfeit lamb especially, from the end of chapter 13, the focus shifts from the counterfeit lamb now to the true lamb. The true lamb standing in victory. This is an important shift. Because his victory, don't miss it, his victory is our victory. And we need to know that today. So if you have your Bibles, let's look here at chapter 14 of Revelation, starting in verse 1. And we're just going to handle the first uh, five verses this morning here of Revelation 14. There's a lot here for us. So just looking at Revelation 14, looking at verse 1, there the Apostle John writes, Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Okay, work with me, right? We're still in the vision, okay? This is not the first time we've been introduced to this 144,000, and it's not the first time we've been introduced to the Lamb. We know the Lamb is Jesus, the Lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of our sins and to purchase a people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So here, instead of the counterfeit Lamb of chapter 13, now we look, and now John sees the true Lamb, the real deal. And it's interesting in the grammar here, there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Standing, not running, not afraid, not, you know, just standing there, triumphant in victory. Where is he standing? He's standing on Mount Zion. 
Now, the issue with Mount Zion is this. On Mount Zion, you have, with Mount Zion, you have this throwback name for the city of Jerusalem. It really, it really, really referred to one hill in Jerusalem, but eventually it came to be known as kind of for the whole city. So you have this throwback name for Jerusalem that, that brings with it all the, the connotations of God's reign over his people, blessing, and especially the reign of King David. So it's kind of like an homage to the glory days of the past that anticipate the greater glory days that are coming. And so here's the lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with the lamb are standing who? The 144,000. And you remember, because uh, we're all really excellent at math, that our 144,000 is two twelves times a thousand. The two twelves, the 12 tribes of the Old Testament representing Old Testament believers, and then the 12 apostles of the New Testament representing New Testament era believers, right? And the myriads that that is, that's the thousands. So you get 144,000. That number represents believers from the Old and New Testament era. And so here we have a, a picture, and again, this is all re- repeated from chapter 7, but a picture of the redeemed together, the church collective. And what are we doing? We're standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. What's significant about these 144,000 is they all have tattoos. You didn't know they were in the Bible, but look at verse 1 again. All right, the, with them were the 144,000 who had his name, the Lamb's name, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. In chapter 7, we saw that the 144,000 were sealed with the stamp, right? Saying, we belong to the Lord. We belong to the Lamb. And that seal, that was a marking of protection, that we are protected not from persecution. But we're protected from the wrath of God and judgment. And so here, here the 144,000 stand victorious with the Lamb. In contrast to what? In contrast to all those who have been deceived by the unholy trinity. All those who in chapters 12 and 13 have suffered under the dragon and the beast's oppression, the the lies, the scheming, right, the trickery, even the religious lies that have been couched in acceptable terms for our culture and our world. And so there are some who refuse to worship the beast, and they are the 144,000. They are believers. And so there's a, a contrast here to those who have been marked and who belong to the true lamb, who have the lamb's name written on their head, who have the, the name of the father written on their forehead, rather than those who are marked with that mark of the beast that we talked about back in chapter 13. You see, the vision continues because the fact is, in the awkward spot, today we are called to fight the dragon. We're still talking about the spiritual warfare. We have to fight the dragon. But we fight the dragon, how? By following the lamb. We fight the dragon, fight the dragon by following the lamb. And in this part of the vision, we actually are are shown some aspects of the Lamb's victory and our victory. The first thing I would draw your attention to this morning is the fact that we follow by standing with the Lamb. Again, the visual here is important. You, You know, you got the dragon standing by the sea, and then he calls up the sea beast, and then he calls up the beast out of the earth, right? And so you got this whole scary thing going down. But then the the camera pans over, and instead of looking at the dragon and the beast, then the camera looks, and they're up on the hill on Mount Zion. What do we see? The triumphant Lamb, who, yes, he was slain, but is risen from the dead. Not a counterfeit resurrection, not the false resurrection, but the true resurrection of the Son of God. And there he stands victorious. But who's with him? Well, it's the church. It's those faithful believers from the Old and New Testament era, perhaps with an emphasis on the fact that they may have even died for their faith while they were waging war with the dragon and his beasts. There they stand victorious with the Lamb. You see, 
we need to fight the dragon by following the lamb. And the first thing we learned this morning is we follow by standing with the lamb. Victory is possible. Now watch it. Victory is impossible, but it's only possible in Christ. So there's no potential for standing victorious without the lamb. It's all dependent on the work of the lamb. The victory is the lamb's work. So what should we do? We should stand with him. The idea for the seven churches, the idea for you and me this morning here in this part of the vision is, yes, we will one day stand victoriously with the Lamb in the, in the New Jerusalem. Mount Zion is probably referring there to the New Jerusalem. So we're going to stand with him in the New Jerusalem. But you know what? If we're going to stand with the Lamb then, we might as well stand with the Lamb now. But the dragon's raging, yes. The beast's lies are being promulgated, yes. But people won't like it, yes. But where else is their victory? Where else is there peace? Where else is there forgiveness and righteousness and belonging and the removal of shame and guilt? Victory is only possible in the Lamb, and so we stand with Christ, followed by standing with the Lamb. I think it's important to just note in this regard that victory is not possible through any other means. It's not possible through politics. Again, it's timely. You know, we have this big Supreme Court decision this week, and it's a decision that, you know, we would agree with or I would agree with. But the fact is, ultimately, our hope is not in a political resurgence, some kind of, you know, new Congress or a better Supreme Court or a better president or whatever. Victory is not possible through politics. We cannot get to our ultimate goal through political ends. Sometimes the church forgets that. We get distracted. We get riled up and wound up in the political agenda rather than the kingdom agenda of God. Victory is also not possible through military might. We're thinking a lot about this because of the conflict over in Europe. And the fact is that the issue there is weaponry. Can we get the weapons to the right people that we think need them to do whatever? But the fact is military might is not going to determine what the outcome is of the ultimate war. And so military might is not our main goal or aim. Kind of related to that, but technology, we talk about technology. Sometimes we think ultimately we're going to have peace and security through technology. Technology can be a blessing, but the fact is we can't get what we really need through technological means. We can't get it through business savvy. We can't get it through medicine or health care. We can't get it through increased popularity and influence with others. The fact is there's only one place we can find victory, and that is through Jesus Christ. And so that's, that's where we must stand. We must stand with the Lamb. Now, I think implicit in this is the fact that if we stand with the Lamb, we'll be known for standing with the Lamb because we have His name stamped on our foreheads. Some of you are uncomfortable. You think you're going to actually have to get tattoos before you leave this morning. We're not doing that, okay? That's not how we're doing this. But the, the picture is pretty clear. If you're part of the 144,000, you will be known for belonging to the Lamb. You can't hide it, is the, is the picture, right? Which that's a theme that's been coming up in Revelation a little bit. And so the question is, if I'm really going to stand with the Lamb, if I have victory with the Lamb, if I will be standing with Him in that glorious day, will I stand with Him today? Where it might cost me something. We know I'm going to gain, but it's going to cost you something. Right? It might cost you in reputation, It might cost you in advancement in your career. It might cost you in how people think of you at school, right? It might cost you in what your neighbors think of you or how your family treats you. But we've 
we've got to fight the dragon. And we fight the dragon by following the lamb, which means at the bare minimum, standing with the lamb. Standing in victory. This is a good picture. In some senses, chapter 12 and 13 explain like the hardship right, of, of the current circumstance leading up to the end. And then now chapter 14 is another sneak preview of the good conclusion. And that is meant to sustain the church in the meantime as we navigate living in a hostile world. So we follow by standing with the Lamb. Will you stand with the Lamb? What do these victorious uh, believers do when they're standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion? Well, they sing. Watch verse 2. I heard a sound from heaven, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. Okay, pause right here. You're thinking about a harp in like, you know, a really fancy hotel where they have like a harpist playing over there in the corner, this really soothing like, you know, like, doesn't that sound just like a harp? Like, that's that's my best harp impersonation. I can't, I'm not really great at it. But you know, it's like you're this very, uh, like whatever. This is, this is not that harp, okay? Just so we're kind of clear, okay? The harp is the primary instrument of worship from the book of Psalms. You're thinking about a stringed instrument that makes noise. But just notice here, the sound is like cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. This harp has a subwoofer, okay? All right? It, this, this is serious. What, what are we talking about? Again, the harps in heaven thing, it's all gotten totally, you know, messed up because of cartoons. Like, the idea here is not this, like, mellow, almost trance-like, peaceful, whatever. No, th- this is about a song of praise that's resonating from heaven. So it's interesting. He heard the sound from heaven, like the sound of cascading waters. If you've ever heard a waterfall, it's captivating that sound. It's not quiet. It's captivating. There's something to it. And again, like the rumbling of thunder, you can't ignore it. It catches your attention, right? And the sound was like a harpist playing on the harps. Now, what song do we sing in the Psalms with harps? We sing the song of victory of God, songs of praise and worship. And so verse 3, we see the description here. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. But no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. You you don't sing here unless you're victorious in this context. And so here the harps signify a new song of victory proclaiming God's work, okay? How do we know we've been victorious? Because the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion and the 144,000 are with him. Who's singing in verse 3? Well, there's a little bit of disagreement about that. Either it's angels singing from heaven and then the saints learn the song. There's no doubt the saints are the one learning the song. But it's either the angels are singing the song and the saints learn it, or the saints are singing it as they're learning it. It doesn't really make a huge difference. The point is this. These 144,000 are the only ones who can sing this song. Why? Verse 3, because they have been redeemed from the earth. So we fight the dragon by following the lamb. We follow the lamb by standing with him. We stand with the lamb, but we also follow by singing of him. By singing of the Lamb. There's an emphasis here on the fact that the redeemed proclaim the praises of God in song. We shouldn't be surprised at that, knowing what we know from the scriptures, reading so often of God's work in in delivering his people, and it results in the singing of of praise. Like you can think about in the Exodus, or after Exodus 14, after they're delivered through the sea, in Exodus 15, they sing. They sing the song of Moses, a song of praise. That actually influences Revelation chapter 15. We'll talk about that when we get there. 
But the fact is, the redeemed have a capacity to sing a particular song that no one else can sing. Why? Because the Spirit of God has brought them to life. And now they worship the Lamb. And they stand with the Lamb. And so they sing of the Lamb. Now, is this talking about, in general, the singing of the redeemed just throughout the history of the church? Or is it talking about a particular new song that we will learn in the New Jerusalem? I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows that for sure. But the point is still clear that that we follow the Lamb by singing of the Lamb. We often don't associate singing with military tactics, right? But here's this victorious uh, congregation with the Lamb. You might even say it looks like an army. There's some of the language here that leans towards interpreting the 144,000 as the army of the Lamb. So this army, though, what does the army do? The army sings. The army learns this new song. We have this song of victory. And again, that's a biblical concept, although it doesn't make any sense with warfare. I just would cite for you in this example, the the example of Jehoshaphat versus the Transjordan Coalition, which I know you know well, but I'll just remind you in case you're not with me. Second Chronicles chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat is, uh, faces this difficulty of the Transjordan Coalition, a bunch of nations across the, uh, the Jordan. They got together, they banded together as their armies, and they came across the Jordan in order to attack the nation. And so King Jehoshaphat is, is looking to the Lord for victory in a prayer of faith, and God answers his prayer, and he says this. This is in Second Chronicles 20. He says, Do not be afraid. The battle is not yours, but God's. Again, it fits well with the, this idea of the victory of the Lamb. The battle is not ours, it's God's. He's won the victory. It's his. In fact, he goes on in Second Chronicles 20, the prophet says to Jehoshaphat, see the salvation of the Lord. You don't have to do it, you just have to watch it happen. You don't accomplish the salvation of God, you receive the salvation of God. But then, they send the Levites first. Now listen, I don't know how much you're up on military tactics, the choir is not your, the tip of the spear, okay? All right? That's not, and I know I've got some military brothers and sisters here. I, you know what I'm talking about. You don't send the choir in first, okay? They send the Levites first. <laughs> Listen to it. When they went out in front of the, when they went out in front of the armed forces, they kept singing. Give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love endures forever. They were threatened It was a very real threat that the capacity for great difficulty and hardship. And yet, here go the Levites leading the charge. And I'll just summarize the rest of it for you. But they get to the the site of the the Transjordan Coalition Army, and they find them already dead. The Lord had gone before them. They disagreed amongst each other. They fought and killed each other, and they just showed up, and all they had to do was collect the spoil. That's what he means when he says the battle is not yours, it's God's. That's what he meant when he said, see the salvation of the Lord. And when we talk about the redeemed of the Lamb singing, we sing because we are victorious. And that is our, it's really interesting, it's our, in some ways, our most effective weapon in the daily battle is this recognition that we are called to the lifestyle of worship, including worship in song. Now, again, the, the background of this picture of the 144,000 in light of the beast and the, or the two beasts and the dragon is that many of them may have died for their faith. But even though they've died, they did not lose. They stand victorious with the Lamb, and they sing the song of victory, the song of the redeemed. The particular song might actually be quoted in Revelation 15, and we'll get there uh, in weeks to come. So what should we learn from this section? Well, the fact is, as we endure despite opposition, 
part of that means recognizing that we can sing the song of the redeemed now because we already have the victory now, even though we still face the hardship. So this is why the people of God have always been a singing people. Uh, the Protestant Reformation. In the Protestant Reformation, one of the, one of the things they recovered in that time period was the fact that the congregation is not there to observe uh, the, the religious worship service. And the re- religious worship service isn't done to them, but they actually participate in the worship service. And so in the Reformation, what do you find? You find a resurgence of the writing of songs of worship for the people of God to sing. It was infuriating to the enemies of the true gospel because they couldn't stand the fact that they would hear these people singing all the time, these songs of worship. It was just a reminder of the clarity of what God had done in their lives. The singing church, as Peter Lightheart said, is ready for anything. Is ready for anything. Um, we have a singing church, which I love. In fact, the first Sunday we were ever at Green Palm Bible Chapel, I remember vividly uh, being here in the worship service and hearing the voices of praise, just singing praise to God. And I remember thinking, this is a good sign. These people love Jesus. Do you realize, though, that as a singing church, you are ready for anything? You are equipped with the song of the redeemed that can sustain you through the temporary difficulties and struggles that you will face. Again, our gatherings are intentionally not concerts, right? We call all who are in attendance who have put their faith in Jesus to participate in our worship services, including the singing portion. It doesn't matter if you don't sound good. That's not the point, right? The point is that we together have the song of the redeemed in our hearts. Did you know that singing is formative? It does something to you. In Colossians 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul calls us to teach and admonish one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why? Because these songs have the truths of the gospel encapsulated in the form of poetry. And when you put that to music, it does something to you. It teaches, it teaches us truths that we may have never known or forgotten. It puts those truths in memorable form so that we can call them to mind easily at other times. It reminds us of truths that we've already known, right? That's why some songs have lasted for a long time in the church, because they're good, because they remind us of things that we need to remember. And we're encouraged, not just by the content of the song, but by the vocal proclamation of those truths by other saints. So the 144,000, the only ones who can learn this song, they learn the song and they sing the song in victory. It's, it's not a moment of defeat. It's a moment of victory. I don't think it's a mistake that we find believers all throughout the ages being sustained in their daily walk of faith through songs of praise. We were meant to sing. The fact is, though, this song is only available to the redeemed. And so you might just ask the question, okay, am I following the Lamb by standing with the Lamb? Am I following the Lamb by singing of the Lamb? Maybe there's an opportunity here for you to grow in this just a little bit and just to be willing to risk being heard. Now, listen, I can tell you, okay, nobody on the live stream is picking out your voice and going, wow, I need to clean that up. I mean, did you hear Tom Grohl this week? It was not on key, right? We got to clean that up, you know? No, no offense, Brother Tom. We love you. No, it's, 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 that's not the point. And the thing is, this is the cool thing about congregational singing, is that when we participate together, when we sing together, 
there's actually power in anonymity. <laughs> like, you can't really hear the individual voices because they all kind of just go together. And God has designed music so that even the worst singers can actually somehow be in harmony in some bizarre level that nobody understands, right? So we don't, we don't have to fear that. Instead, we realize, wait a minute, hold on. Even though the beasts are, are, are deceiving and scheming, and even though the dragon is raging, even though that is happening, we stand victorious with the Lamb. And we have access to the song of the redeemed, a song that no one else can sing, but that we can sing. Because God has done this work to us. And by singing that song even now, by singing that song even now, we are sustained through the challenges that we face. Don't underestimate what singing the praise to God and these truths from the scripture will do to your soul. It's amazing how sometimes a song can change your mood, just like that. It can remind you those things that you need to be reminded of and encourage you in the midst of discouragement. We follow the Lamb by singing of the Lamb. Are you doing that? Are you, are you praising Him in song? Well, what is this army actually doing besides singing, right? Verse 4, watch verse 4 as the vision continues. These 144,000, these are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remain virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and for the, and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, what's going on here is we have a picture of the purity of this army, the victorious army of the Lamb. Now, the first part of the picture is that they haven't defiled themselves with women since they remain virgins. This is not literally talking about virginity. This is talking about spiritual purity. In the Old Testament, as well as in the book of Revelation, uh, faithfulness to God is put sometimes in these terms of faithfulness in a marriage relationship. And so the picture here is that we are betrothed to the Lamb, but we must remain faithful until the marriage. And so that means saying no to idolatry. So this is all about idolatry here, this picture. And so instead of giving in to that temptation, the army of the Lamb says no to idolatry, to the idols of our age. That's clarified in the rest of verse 4. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Now that line right there is very powerful because number one, it assumes the leadership of Jesus Christ practically in our lives. But secondly, it means that if we're following Jesus as our leader, we will follow Him on the path that He has set for us. Which, frankly speaking, isn't always the easiest road. So sometimes the things that Jesus calls us to are hard and difficult. Sometimes the things that he has ordained for us are the last things we would choose. You think about the seven churches in, in Asia Minor and the Roman Empire. I mean, they're living in a circumstance where they could very easily be uh, imprisoned for their faith. Some would be. Again, they knew some folks who had been killed for their faith. And that may be the road that the Lamb is leading them down. The 144,000 are willing to follow that road, to say no to the idol of acceptance by the culture, to say no to the idol of sexual immorality, say no to the idol of peer pressure and giving in to just what everybody else wants, right? To say no to the idol of greed and, and pursuing money at all costs. No, these are the ones who've stayed pure. They've said no, and they followed the lamb wherever he goes. In fact, they were redeemed, in verse 4 it says, from humanity as the first fruits for God and the lamb. 
Let's talk about this first fruits. Here, the distinction is this. So in, uh, in the first harvest, the, the first part of the harvest, especially the first harvest of the year, uh, the ancient, ancient Israelites were uh, instructed to set aside the first fruits of that harvest and to give them to the Lord. The rest of the harvest was for, for secular use, but the first fruits were for holy use. So here the distinction is in between those who are dedicated to the Lord, the 144,000, and those who are not. These 144,000 are the first fruits for God in the Lamb, meaning we don't belong to ourselves, we belong to the Lamb. We are holy unto the Lamb, which implies we follow His leadership in living distinct lives. We don't just think like everybody else around us. We don't just talk like everybody else around us. We're different. We behave differently. Why? Because we're first fruits. We've been offered to the Lord. We belong to Him. We are sanctified in that sense, set apart. In verse 5, the focus is on our speech. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. People lie for several reasons. One of the main reasons we lie is because we're worried about what other people think of us. Sometimes we lie to get something that we want, right? Sometimes we lie because we're covering up our failures. But the fact of the matter is here... (laughs) The 144,000, the army of the Lamb, they're different in that they don't deceive others. They speak the truth. Objection. Sometimes speaking the truth can cause problems. Yeah, but these 144,000 follow the Lamb. There's a decision to be made. You know, often in our culture, you know, there's a big argument about, well, when is it appropriate to lie, you know, and deceive and, and all of that? Often, that conversation is motivated by a desire to justify us doing what we want rather than following the Lamb. We want to cover up. We want to hide. We want to deceive. We want to exaggerate. We want to inflate our importance or whatever, increase our standing with a particular group. But the fact of the matter is that the army of the Lamb are pure, and their lives are marked by this spiritual purity, which is reflected in how they speak. It's reflected in how they interact with the idols of their age. We follow the Lamb by standing with the Lamb. We follow the Lamb by singing of the Lamb. And we follow the Lamb by sacrificing for the Lamb. Sacrificing for the Lamb. Here we're talking about giving something up, saying no to our desires, perhaps, because we are being faithful to God. This is the issue ultimately is idolatry. So we could ask the question this morning Am I compromising here? Am I giving in to the temptations? that I'm facing? Am I giving in to greed, love of money? That's a big one. Am I giving in to the sexual ethic of our age? You do whatever you want. Am I giving in to that sin of gossip where I'm talking and sharing information just to advance my standing without regard for how it affects the people I'm talking about? Am I giving in to pride, just being over-concerned with my you know, greatness thinking I'm better than I am? Am I giving in to arrogance, thinking I'm more important than others? Am I giving in to selfishness? Again, it's just about the the me-first way of thinking. Am I giving in to jealousy, constantly looking at social media, obsessed with what everybody else is doing, wishing I had that, wishing I looked like that, wishing I was there with them, whatever? Am I obsessed or chasing after love of comfort, compromising with that God? Am I compromising by being lazy? Am I compromising by being gluttonous? You see, there's so many opportunities we have to chase after the gods of our age and to commit those sins, but the army of the Lamb is different. We say no to those temptations because we're fighting the dragon. 
And so we're going to stay true to the Lamb. We're going to follow the Lamb. Not to earn forgiveness, but because we already have it in Christ. This is where there's so much encouragement here. And as I rattled off that list of struggles, I know I resonated with probably everyone in this room at some point or another. You think, yes, I've been struggling with that. But here's the truth. As you face the reality of your failure to follow the Lamb, this is the beauty of the Lamb. He died to pay for that failure. He died to rescue us from that sin. So not only has the penalty been paid by his shed blood on our behalf so that we can be forgiven, he's actually called us to new life so that our shame is removed and now we have purpose and belonging. So we are now a part of the 144,000. And so because of that, we are now equipped to say, I, yes, I struggle with that. I confess it as sin. I turn my back on it. I repent and I'm walking with the lamb. I'll follow him wherever he goes. And yes, it might be awkward. It might be difficult. It might create some unpleasant conversations. I might lose face, but I'm going to follow the lamb wherever he leads. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, I would encourage you that, yes, you failed. But in spite of that failure, the lamb loves you. And he's proven it on the cross. So maybe today is the day that you finally give up chasing your own dream and you start chasing him. You confess your sin and you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. We follow by sacrificing with the lamb. Will you follow the lamb? Moses struggled. Remember when God called Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt? Remember what Moses said? Can't do it. Don't have the skill set. Sometimes we have the Moses objection. The Lamb is clearly calling us to a particular uh, way of living, a distinct way of living, a way of serving Him perhaps. And we're thinking, you know what? I'm, I can't do it. I don't have that skill set. And God says, in short, I got that covered. <laughs> don't sweat it. Or maybe you're more like the Jonah, the Jonah response. When God says, go over here, Jonah's like, okay, no, I'm going this way, Right? You're just going to, I'm not going there. I'm going here. Jonah had reasonable objections to going into that sinful city of Nineveh and the pagan culture. Oh, talk about a bad sexual ethic. You should see what their Supreme Court decided, right? You know, and all that. Like, so he's like, I'm not going there, that dirty place. I'm going to go this way. Jonah's like, I'm going to be pure over here. And, and no, no, God said, no, you're going this way. I've got work to do with these people because they're not your enemies. I want to redeem them. Sometimes we pull a Peter. Peter, on the night of Jesus' arrest, when he sees Jesus there and he's in the courtyard and people are starting to recognize him, the Lamb's calling him to go a particular road, a road of difficulty, a road where he loses reputation with his peers, a road of suffering and a road that will ultimately result in his untimely death as a martyr. And Peter sees it all, he sees it all playing out right there. And everybody's starting to recognize him, and he's like, I'm not going there. Too many people will see. I'm not following the lamb there. Too many people will see, and they'll know it's me. I don't know where you're going to struggle. If it's like Moses or like Jonah or like Peter. But I know that in each of those instances, God brought them to a place 
where they repented of their failure to follow, and they finally did. And look at what God does with normal people who are willing to follow him. Brothers and sisters, God's not looking for you to be some kind of superhero for the church. He's just looking for you to follow the Lamb. In the midst of, yes, admittedly difficult circumstances. There are conflicting ideas of victory in this vision. In the beast's way of thinking, right? Influenced by the dragon, victory is you get what you want. But when you get what you want, you actually suffer and lose in the end. In the Lamb's vision of victory, in the short run, you may face difficulty and hardship. And it's, yes, it's, it's hard. And you might lose something in the eyes of the world. You might be known, it might be thought of less as, as because you're a believer, but ultimately you stand with the Lamb in victory. And so it is short-term loss for long-term gain here. That's what we're called to, is living as Christians in a darkened culture. We're called to fight the dragon by following the Lamb. By standing, by singing, by sacrificing. I just wanted to encourage you that we're not the only ones who have, who face the challenge. You, you may not know his name. There's a famous hymn writer. His name was William Cooper. He lived in the 1700s. Yes, he is my friend. Yeah, I'm going to get there. Just give me a minute. He struggled with severe depression. He was put in an asylum. And in the asylum, he became a follower of Jesus. He gets out of the asylum. His family's got him. They don't know what to do with him. John Newton, pastor, Invest time. This is true. Newton says, "Ah, I'm going to go visit this guy. I'm going to spend time with him. He said, what am I going to do with this guy? Well, he was a poet. Cooper was a poet. So Newton goes, I just, let's, write, let's write hymns. Like, I'm just going to go encourage this guy. In the midst of a culture that was darkening, just like ours, and so Owen or uh, Newton goes, and they start writing these hymns, <laughs> and they wrote some classics, like Amazing Grace. You heard of that one? Cooper wrote like I think like a third of the hymnal that was resulted from their work together, the collaboration. One of them is "There Is a Fountain." You remember that one? There is a fountain filled with blood. In one of the verses, he says, "Dear dying Lamb, thy precious blood." will never lose its power. Part of that comes from Revelation 14. In another verse, he says, With this, when this poor lisping, stammering, crying tongue, right, lies silent in the grave. What? What is it? I'll sing thy power to save. With a new and nobler song, I'll sing thy power to save. There's just a question of if we're going to follow. That's the question. Not to earn salvation, but because we have it. This is what God is calling us to. To fight the dragon by following the lamb. Standing, singing, and sacrificing. 
what we're going to do here is I'm going to pray in conclusion, and then we're going to take a little extra time here at the end of the service. We have a few extra minutes. We're going to sing a little extra. Why? Because we're the redeemed. So would you please bow your heads with me and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for this encouragement, this glorious picture of the Lamb standing in victory. Lord Jesus, it's you standing in victory on Mount Zion with your precious church surrounding you. Lord, we look forward to that day. We long for it. But in the meantime, Lord, we recognize that we still face the schemes of the dragon. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be people who follow you. Not to try to earn favor, but because we have already received favor from you. So, Lord, help us to stand with you, to sing of you, Lord, and to sacrifice for you. Especially as we think about our failures, Lord, and giving in to temptation, we ask for your forgiveness, and we pray that you would equip us to say no to temptation by faith in you. And Lord, we pray that you would equip us to think about our lives as being ransomed for your purposes. Just like William Cooper and John Newton taking what was seemed like a broken situation and using it in remarkable ways for your glory. Lord, help us. Help us to follow you wherever you lead. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus, the victorious Lamb. Amen.